The struggle for equality has been a baseline for marginalized communities for centuries. Some of the most powerful opposition to the unjust social structures that create class lines has come from small groups banding together to stand against the oppression of the ruling class. Marita Canedo and her comrades at Migrant Justice have stood strong on the front lines for over a decade, rallying for reform to provide humane living conditions and basic human rights for those who provide sustenance for the masses. Today on Cocina Pirata Podcast, Marita joins me to discuss the power of community and how borderless worldviews can provide equanimity in humankind. Contra la muerte, nosotros demandamos vida. Contra el silencio, exigimos la palabra y el respeto. Contra el olvido, la memoria. Contra la humillación y el desprecio, la dignidad. Contra la opresión, la rebeldía. Contra la esclavitud, la libertad. Contra la imposición, la democracia. Y contra el crimen, la justicia. So I guess we're ready to go. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. After driving through the snowstorm, which has been uh, the most that we've got all year, hey? That's so, right. <laughs> so um, I don't know any of your backstory, so I think the best place for us to jump off is just explain to everybody where you're from, how you came to the United States, and, and, and about your the projects that you're, that you're working on. Sure. So first of all, my name is Marita Canedo, and I'm originally from La Paz, Bolivia. I came to the USA in 2005 as an adventure with my family and my partner at the time. Uh, we ended up living in Columbus, Ohio for five years. And I come from a family of social movement and a lot of political analysis and the movement. Really, my parents were very big activists during the uh, military coup in Bolivia and we were raised in a way that we always have to fight for equality and for human rights. So ended up in the USA, you know, the mecca of capitalism was kind of a shock, but it was an adventure to just learn a new language and see what was gonna happen with our lives at the moment. And it was a big surprise for me to see how the people in this country, there are a lot of people that are really interested to make the real change, that they don't agree with what is happening. Um, so when we moved to Vermont in 2010, the first thing I, I did was to get connected with some organizations. And in Vermont, it was more environmental movement. So I started, you know, bringing the kids to some uh, farms and we will do some activities there and some like activism. But I heard from someone that there was a, a movement from the Latino community, specifically the people working in dairy farms, and I was trying to find them. I didn't know where they were. I started volunteering with the worker center, and finally I heard someone speaking Spanish. And immediately, because that's my first language, I went directly to that person, and there they were, uh, migrant justice. It was just uh, kind of the beginning of the driver license campaign, and I left the worker center, and I said, I want to be with you because I felt more as a community and you know, hearing my own language, it was something that I really needed for a long time. And we started talking about it. And I just, it made sense for me to be part of migrant justice. So I started as a volunteer with the support line and it was connecting people to uh, service providers, making this, these services available to the community, 
learning about labor laws and other things. And and then I was invited to be part of the board and finally part of the staff. And now I've been there working since 2014, like officially, let's say, (laughs) (laughs) but part of the team since 2010. Cool. Yeah. And how did, how did, um, how did you guys end up in, how did your family end up in Vermont? There was another opportunity for work. Uh, and I didn't know what to do. It was a moment in my life that I was going to go back to Bolivia or, you know, just start a new adventure. And as soon as I was in Vermont and I'm from the Andes, so having the mountains nearby and <laughs> ah, it made sense to just give it a try. Yeah. And, and you there wasn't a community here. like until you met the people from migrant justice you didn't have a community of of latin americans here that you knew or were no nothing i i, th- I think yeah it was very isolated uh, especially in vermont i think people that come to live in vermont or are from vermont they like the isolation or is the way of life here and and for me in my culture in my spirit it wasn't something that I could have bear too long. So yeah, I was looking for a community. <laughs> and, and migrant justice, if you can explain a little bit, I, I know about what migrant justice is. Um, that's why I reached out to you guys to work with you um, on, a, on this, this food project that I'm doing. But um, if you can explain a little bit about what migrant justice is and how it started and who started it, because I think that's an important part to understand. I think it's a little bit different than most uh, nonprofits in the United States, at least from my perspective. Yeah, definitely. So migrant justice started after a tragedy. It was the death of a young farm worker, Jose Obed Santis. Uh, he was... 1920 at the time that he had this uh, preventable accident in a dairy farm and died. So people here in Vermont that were giving some services to dairy farm workers realized that there is a whole community sustaining the dairy industry that are invisible and without any protection. Uh, So they decided to create the space and tools for this community to organize. So at the beginning, it was just three people, you know, one Vermonter, one Colombian, and one Mexican, like dairy farm worker, figuring out ways to bring this community together and talk to each other about, um, you know, what are the struggles, what are the similitudes that they are experiencing in the farms, and how to start um, thinking about collective solutions. And it was incredible how they started meeting with people, you know, going to the farms, bringing people to Burlington uh, and the first need that they came up, it was like access to driver licenses. And that's when I got uh, hooked with them, let's say, because um, yeah, the organization was not yet a nonprofit. It was just some people really bringing the community to organize themselves and decide where, where this was going to go. And still like that now. And were those people that you first met, were they here on work? I assume not, but I'm just going to ask the question just to, so everybody can understand is, were they here on work visas or they were brought here because there was work and they were connected through families? I mean, I worked for a long period of time in in, uh, in Southern California, so I understand how the sharing of identities works, but just at the time they were here because there was work, were they... Uh, yeah, so most of the people that work in dairy farms uh, are undocumented. 
they come here in a way that they hear there is work all, all year long, which it's great, you know, different than other crops that you have to follow the harvest. And then housing is provided by your employer, which is a plus you don't have to find and pay for rent, which brings a lot of dynamics about what kind of housing you're going to get and what kind yeah. of schedules. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so when, I guess the, the, the question that I have, uh, unanswered in my head is how that dynamic worked when there was a collective of people who are illegal immigrants, who obviously, regardless if they're here working for somebody else, they deserve rights. Um, how does that collective come together and start to make statements about justice and not risk being outed or deported or marginalized? Yeah, well, we start just with the one first. Second, just pull the mic a little bit closer okay. to you. We, we start with the first thing that nobody is illegal. No human being it's illegal. So that's why we don't use the word legal. We say undocumented or documented, which is just a piece of paper that, you know, rich people in governments decide and create the borders that, you know, are made by men. Absolutely. So the invisible lines. Yes. So with, with that concept, we always, uh, the community themselves, uh, they realize that they have rights just for the fact that they are human beings. And dignity is something that we are born with, but it's taken out from us. So it's just getting back your dignity and the fear is there. People have been, in migrant justice leaders, have been uh, persecuted and monitored and surveillance for what we do. Yeah. However, uh, you know, that makes us stronger in a way. The community feels stronger because, well, you know, you want to end up uh, this oppression and this being uh, hidden on the dark by coming up to the light. It's the only way to do it and face all the conflicts and speak up. So that's how the community, you know, started meeting together. And because of the isolation in the farms and no access to transportation and all that made us able to have this, um, I don't know, like this eagerness to get together. Like if somebody's uh, working in a farm and knows that a cousin or a relative is five miles away, but I cannot see this person because I don't have a way to go five miles there, then uh, I have to find a way. Yeah. So that's how we have these regional assemblies. And this is where we bring a lot of people with a lot of support of volunteers uh, helping with transportation. So people come to the assemblies and, you know, we share food, which is the main thing in our culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, and that's where people start talking and deciding these things. So, yeah, it's it's kind of like kind of a regular human behavior. We wanted to get together and, and, and fight for your human rights and bring your dignity back. It's funny that you guys use that. Or not funny, but it's it's uh, interesting and, and cool to me that you guys use that standpoint of 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 no human is illegal. Um it's funny when we're talking about, you know, someone who is perceived as not being allowed in a specific space because they don't have a document because someone decided that there was a line in the sand where they couldn't cross, um, regardless of whether or not someone is employing them and knows wholeheartedly that they're undocumented, the person who gets per persecuted is the person working, not the person who's actually employing that person. Maybe to some extent there's some fines associated, but 
we have a tendency in this country um, to to look at the people who are maybe well probably because most people in this country can't understand true oppression like most of the Latin American countries truly do. Um, but it, it is kind of crazy that there's this this isolation that that you say exists in Vermont for regular human beings actually exists all throughout the country for a lot of people from Latin America and undocumented workers who are here. They have to stay isolated and they have to stay um, hidden from the public eye kind of. Um, do you find that Vermont is... I don't know how much you know about the rest of the country or how much you know about workers in the rest of the country, but do you feel like Vermont specifically um, is is kind of more receptive to this idealism that you guys are putting forth than most other states would be? I mean, talking about isolation in Vermont, I think we can say there is no a town or a store even that is for the community. And just bringing the word like we, you know, the, Latin, the Latinx community, I always say in any group that we are together, it's like we also have to understand different things. You know, all the Latinx community, the, we're not the same. There are different social economic status. There are different colors. There, there are different races. Some of us are all mixed with everything. And if we, we don't address that and we just keep putting ourselves in just one box of Latinx, we're never going to be able to really understand that there are people way more vulnerable in our community that need our support as well, even that, you know, Marita feels isolated. But I don't have the same fear that somebody that, it's facing deportation, for example, you yeah. know? So I have to use that privilege in my community to bring those voices up. And I think Vermont specifically uh, is very supportive in the things that we do because it's kind of a nuance. But at the same time, the isolation is bigger because it doesn't allow um, for us to have like really a space, you know, take the space. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I'm from, I'm born and raised here and I, I left home when I was 18 years old and I moved to the, to the, the West coast and I was always working in kitchens. So for me, like one of the funniest things was moving to the West coast and like in Vermont, I think we had one Mexican restaurant when I was a kid, it was called Tortilla Flats. It's like where Bluebird barbecue is now. And I had zero perception about what Mexico was other than a place where, or even Latin American human beings were other than a place where people go to vacation for cheap. And when I moved out West, I, I, the kitchens were all Latin Americans, um, and, and mostly Mexicans, but I, I felt a, a unique hominess around them because I felt like the community that they, uh, that they create is, a, is kind of like the community here. There's some, some similar, um, morals, I guess, in, in, in ethics behind the way country folk and, and a lot of Latin American cu culture congregates, like you said, food and family and all of those things are important. And so it was weird for me that a lot of people for a lot of older people from here might not be willing to open their eyes to that and willing to open their eyes that somebody, you know, 3000 or 4,000 miles away might have a similar way of living and is okay, for lack of a better term, oppressing them. <laughs> and instead of realizing the value in that person and, and really getting behind, you know, 
they are the backbone of the workforce in our country and, and finding ways to help them. Who have you guys found in, I guess, have you found that the farmers themselves really understand the, the owners, the farmers really understand this community? Are they really, you guys are, cause yeah, you, you, I, I think it's a mix. I have to say it's a mix because I mean, we have to understand the history of agriculture and workers, especially from Mexico coming to, to work here, you know, starts in the 1930s. Yeah. with the braceros and all that history. And it's oppressing. It, they, they were starting hiring people from Mexico to get rid of the black community that was farming as well. So it's all this history of white farmers oppressing other communities in order to get richer or have, you know, like power ownership of the land and access to land. So right now, you know, a lot of farmers... Of course, they know that people are coming undocumented. Some might not. Some might have some kind of visa or permit. And it's true. And, and they are not, farmers are not the one like checking that because they are not immigration enforcement. But it's a way that they get cheap labor and they get workers that are going to do everything to stay here, even facing these terrible conditions. There are farmers that really understand and value the work of, you know, sustaining the farms and all that and try to do their best to keep themselves, uh, you know, their business and and try to create a good, you know, environment with the farms. And, and we see that and we appreciate that and workers appreciate that. Still the economic crisis for dairy, specifically for all the food industry, uh, it brings this downward pressure to farmers that then put the pressure on the workers so, you know, if a farmer has to decide that they need better, you know, improvements on their technology, they are going to invest on that than in salaries or housing, for example. And it's it's a sad reality. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, um, my, my neighbor here, I just did a podcast with uh, last week and he did, had this 10-year documentary. He started in, in college and was just there making a short film about this guy. And it ended up turning into like a 10 year documentary about a, um, a commercial dairy farmer who was going through these struggles and essentially after the 10 years ended up having to sell his farm. And, um, you know, due to the, the driving down of prices of dairy and I mean, big agriculture in general is destroying the, destroying the ability for a lot of these farmers to, to function. But I, I wonder in, in your position, because when I talk about food, being a chef, I hold a lot of responsibility on the people who manage kitchens, who are the chefs, the creators of the food. Um, I think a lot of times the buck gets passed down the line to the people who are producing the food, for example, because it's just easy to say it's not available at an affordable price when actually you could function in a better way. And I know that a lot of what you guys are doing is fighting for justice by attacking the top of the system. Um, how much responsibility do you think, the, do you feel specifically the farmer or do you guys as a group uh, feel the farmer, how much responsibility do they hold to actually also join you on this cause? And do they join you on this cause? Yeah, like I said, it's a mix. Some do. You know, we created the Milk with Dignity program as a response of the lack of protection and, you know, federal and state laws for agricultural workers, mostly dairy workers. 
And what we realized all these years, you know, talking to each other is that farm workers and farmers face the same struggles. And we need to get together. So now that the program has been implemented for five years, there are farmers in the program that are really um, understandable and really appreciate the program because it's not something that it's going to go against the farmers. Actually, it brings a process for the farmers to have a better like labor force management and you know being able to have money for races and improvements in the housing and health and safety and all these things. And they really uh, have given us like really amazing feedback, not publicly. <laughs> yeah, That's the thing. People, uh, farmers, I think are still afraid to, to be in public about, yes, we are hiring undocumented immigrants or we rely on the immigrant community. Forget about undocumented, the immigrant community, because they feel like it's going to be something that's going to go against them, even that everybody knows that. And, and that has been some of the responses I get when I know a good farmer that's been doing amazing and, and he's, he can talk to me about the, the amazing feedback. But when I ask him, can, can we do like a, a podcast or an interview or put your name on something in a video, he's like, no, 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 I will get in trouble with my community. Just like, you can, you can say what I'm saying anonymously or put my name on something that is not that public. Yeah, I think that's kind of that's a that's a big hurdle for you guys. Uh, it's a big. It, I think that right now there's some consciousness growing, and I hope that the next generation can take a little bit more responsibility than the last. But it's definitely a big hurdle, no? Like like crossing that bridge of saying all of your neighbors might despise who you are it, because here's the reality. I, having grown up here, here's the reality: Vermont although it's considered pro a progressive state or an open-minded state, the old, the old guard, if you will, are definitely vested in old ideas, ideals, sorry. And I, I definitely believe that there's a lot of racism still occurring here. And to get, not that there's not people who, um, it's very passive aggressive. I have to say. Yeah, you absolutely. See it, you know, like in, in all generations, but also young generations in the schools, you see a very passive aggressive racism, very subtle. Absolutely. Yeah. And and not just, so it, it, it's funny because I have, a, I have a son that's two years old and he was born in Mexico and we've spent a lot of time in Mexico with him. And, um, you know, the whole beginning of his life was in Mexico. And we noticed the difference just in going to, a playground. Me and my wife speak to him in Spanish because we want him to be proud of his Spanish heritage. All of my family speaks to him in English, so he's going to be bilingual, but we want him to be proud of that. And when we speak to him in Spanish, there's kind of two responses. There's either like people who come up and, and try like have this awkward moment where they like, oh, you speak Spanish. I speak Spanish too and say a couple words to us. And we're like, yeah, okay, yeah. maybe you should not do that. And then the other one, then we do get odd looks sometimes from parents. And children, I think, are indoctrinated with that here. I think yeah. that anything alien, I think that alien in general, and that's kind of crazy that that is a word that's used for that's undocumented true. immigrants. Is anything that's alien to a human being here in the United States? I think that we're, we're taught, a, a very rigid 
standard of operation here. And if you're outside that, you're looked down upon. Yeah. And alien is not only used for undocumented. It's for any immigrant. Yeah. It can be a, yeah. a resident alien. Yeah, that's <laughs> just, also <laughs> absolutely wild to me. Yeah. yeah. I I it I mean my my family's from a lot of my family's from the Northeast Kingdom. My grandfather was a my grandfather's father was a gentleman farmer. They owned dairy, cattle, and a lot of land. And I I would say that my family not my mom and not my mom's side specifically, but on the side that worked in trades specifically, they are absolutely racist, whether or not they believe that they are. And they say similar types of things. Um, you know, I've been told, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a weird conversation and it's such a weird pe way people look at it. And they think that like, okay, if they had gone through the process, a, a lot of people's perception is like, if they had just gone through the process to get the paperwork, we wouldn't have a problem with them being here, but they don't even understand the process to get the paperwork is, is, is almost impossible for the majority of these human beings. Yeah. And also let's talk about, you know, forced migration. That's something that it's real. People, in many, many towns that are now working here in, in dairy farms, had either two options. Either I work for the military or for a fracking company. Yeah. And both of those options were terrible because they were really destroying the environment. Uh, and, you know, we hear stories about grandparents being farmers. And then the pipe, you know, the, the oil pipe came through and they lose their, their crops and they are paid a little bit of money by the company and then your option is to go work for this company in very dangerous conditions as well we we hear stories of some of our leaders that were working on pemex until there's a huge explosion and some of other workers leaders also that uh, i had to join the army but i wasn't really happy and we weren't doing anything they were just kicking our asses all the time and being very abusive and and then you will have some status in, in society but really not not ideal uh, so what is the other option when you start thinking about having a better future? Maybe people wanted to study. We have also friends that wanted to go to college or finish high school. And the only way to do it, it was like finding a, a way to get money. Because the same country that they are coming to work, you know, took all the economy from their country. So it's kind of a forced migration and it's an environmental migration and all these things that come together that we don't even talk much. So it's not only like there is a hard process for coming to this country. It's just sometimes you don't have another option. I always suggest, I, it's interesting that you that you say that specifically. I, I always suggest to people who have, who I have this conversation with who don't really understand. Do you know an author named Eduardo Gallano? Of course. <laughs> so I always suggest that they read Venas Abiertas. And, and I think that it explains wholeheartedly what's been happening since the moment any human being from Europe stepped foot, not, I mean, definitely there in Latin America and also here, the difference here was like, there was absolute decimation and civilization was spread much wider, but Latin America is, is full of resources. And I, there's, there's like far deeper class division that exists here. It's very hard to get out. A very easy example is I mean, in, in, I don't know what it is in, how it is in Bolivia, but in Mexico, for example, um, I think minimum wage in Mexico right now is 87 pesos a day. And a day is 
12 hours, yeah. essentially. Most people um, in the rural, rural area where I was living in Puerto Escondido, where I opened my restaurant, when I got there, most people who are cooking were making 150 pesos a day, which is the equivalent now of, you know, let's say $7 a day. So regardless of how much you try to build out of a class situation there, it's nearly impossible. Um, and I'm sure that there's some stories that would 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 counteract that statement but i really do believe that like you're born into there really in mexico there really isn't as i've seen a middle class there's like an upper class and a lower class and they kind of come close to each other and there's definitely people in the upper class who maybe don't make 1% money but they still have the money to do things and then there's people who don't have money to do things um and so uh, that whole idealism, I think, needs to be understood a little bit more. These people aren't coming here to take jobs from human beings. They're coming here to make a life for themselves back in their home eventually. At least the majority of the people that I saw on, on the West Coast that I worked with um, are sending the majority of their money back home, trying to build something different. I don't think that they're really looking to take anything from anybody. And it's interesting how people don't, uh, understand that or can't see it. And I think it really comes from, again, going back to this idea that I'm not really sure that there's anyone in the United States that can understand oppression like people from Latin America do or have lived through it. I'm not sure that we have a similar, we don't, we don't have that structure here, I guess. Yeah, pro probably it's different, but I know a lot of people and that's, that was a, um, a beautiful surprise for me to learn about people in the USA that understand oppression because they face it as well. You know, you see the black community also struggling a lot and being completely dismantled and put it against each other. And they put us against each other, you know. Uh, it's incredible how much consciousness I see around, you know, access to land and amazing, beautiful things done by the black community trying to figure it out and doing really amazing changes for a just transition while our community still cannot think about those things because they are surviving. And some people might think about that, but like you said, people are thinking, okay, I'm going to go back, so I'm never going to stay here. So how can I have access to land here if I'm going to go back there? And then it's very, um, I don't know, heartbreaking sometimes to hear like, you're always in the middle. And I can understand that as an immigrant, you're always in the middle. You don't want to stay here, but you also don't belong there, but you need to be here. And at the end of the day, you accept whatever condition you have here until, until you cannot do it anymore and you start fighting for your rights or, or raising your voice or, or you know, seeking for something different. Are, are the majority of the people that you guys are working with in, in your, com or majority of the people in your community, I'd, I'd rather call it that than say working with, because I think that's really yeah. what you guys are. It's a, it's a collective movement. Um, I'm sure it's like a family. Um, are the majority of the people inside your community, people who, if given the opportunity you feel would stay here and would bring more of their family here? Or are they people who really love their land and want to go back and are here trying to, 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 make a means to an end where they can go back home and, and one day live outside of oppression in their own home? Yeah, well, I, I have to say that he, things have been changing since I started being part of migrant justice. You know, especially before in dairy farms, you used to see like young men, only men. And maybe somebody will bring 
uh, his partner or a sister. And that woman won't be working at the farm, will be doing like house chores um, because farmers also weren't hiring women. It was still until today, it's kind of very unequal. But now, you know, like I think because people have more stability about okay access to transportation, um, police is not going to act as immigration enforcement here in Vermont, you know, all the things, all the achievements that our own community has been getting, more and more families are starting to settle here. More kids are born. Like I just heard we have 21 women expecting for this year. No That's way. amazing. That's amazing. So I'm thinking, okay, in, in three years, we're going to have to start thinking about schools and how, you know, like yeah. really organize there. Um, but also, uh, also people are bringing their kids. And what used to be really um, kind of a sad cycle, people were repeating the cycle. You know, the father will come here, leave the family there, will send everything that they can, but it's never enough. And then the kids grow up until they are 15, 16, they will start a trip and come here. So father is already old and teaches the kids, you know, how to work in the farm. He might go back or not and kids start the cycle again. And then might have kids there or not. And, and, and the cycle repeats, so people are repeating. But now we see a little bit of change of that, um, which is great somehow. And then there are people that are just meant to be here for a few years and want to go back and really want to have a better life there. So it's not the same for everybody, but I think the big change is that we see more families settling and more women working in farms as well. What is the, what is the path to, as you see it, what do you think the path to freedom for these human beings are like in, in, in the sense that they have the freedom of choice, meaning that they can come here and make a, make a decision to come here and do so with no roadblocks, you know, not have to, if the, the father wants his son to come, for example, of course, he's going to have to find a way to get him some sort of identification that's going to get him into the country which is becoming harder and harder every, every day, I imagine. And then, you know, is it is there a, is there a visa structure that can be built when someone's in that position? Is it something that's happening actively now, or, or? there has been a lot of conversations about an immigration reform, and I think we're not there not because it's not possible, but because it's not convenient for the economy of this country. It's not convenient for capitalism to have uh, a path without roadblocks. Um, if people start having like open borders, <laughs> it will be great, but it will hard. It will be really hard for capitalism. Then they won't have like cheap labor and they couldn't, um, then, you know, they couldn't um, like keep oppressing people. Like they have to give them now specific labor rights, you know, and comply with inspections and all these things that are not happening because this community is still hidden. Um, I think, uh, for example, what we created, which is Milk with Dignity, is just the first step for having a good housing condition, a good working condition without fear of retaliation, without fear of being fired, you know, at will, without a process, uh, without just cause. 
and that brings people some stability, then I can start thinking about other, you know, bigger things. Now, now I can start thinking about the environment and how can I be part of that movement too because I lost, you know, the land or I lost the opportunity there and so polluted back in my country. How can I do something about that? Or I want to have access to land here because I'm with my family here. People are not going to get to that place until we don't get like the minimum for people to feel safe and, you know, with more stability. So I think what we created is just the first step for this and then hopefully, you know, with time, things are going to get better and better. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think we we use the like the de facto term that we use is is capitalism but i think obviously it's we all understand it's really neoliberal neoliberalism yeah. and i think that there's like you know a, a a collective at the top it's the same in any business as i've seen in any business structure that i've ever worked in that there's always someone at the top who's wanting to work less and make more money and the only way to make that happen is to create these roadblocks, do you, in, you can be as esoteric as you want in this reply, <laughs> but like, do you personally see capitalism suffering from any of those, like, like true capitalism, democratic capitalism? Do you really think that it would suffer? Do you really think that there's a way that we could build a system that works for everyone? I, I personally do. I mean, I, yeah. I do. That's why we do what we do, you know, but while we are dismantling this system that is oppressing us, we need to build something because you cannot end up in nothing. And that's what we're trying to do also, you know, you're just started building this community, this acknowledgement, this like take the the, the bandage, I don't know how to say it, yeah, the yeah. veil from your eyes and, and really start seeing the truth that first we're on all this together. There's a couple of people on top deciding and, you know, making these terrible decisions. And we need to build something that is going to be more collect, more collective in community and all this. It's going to bring us this new definition of what is success, right? It's not getting a lot of money to buy the plastic things and to get the biggest car and to get, like, let's take that lie out of our brains and start building what really is a community. And a lot of people are, you know, on that with that hope in that set of mind that yes, we want to build something while we are dismantling this. But in order to do that, we need to feel safe. We need to feel like, okay, we can, we can start thinking about other things and not if tomorrow I'm going to be awake or I'm going to be able to, to keep staying here and not being deported or something like that. Yeah. I, I've, I've always, <clears throat> I've always said that, um, I like that you said things. I think that's our biggest problem is things like the majority of human beings specifically inside this country, their problem is that their, their goal in life is things. And they don't understand that a homeostatic lifestyle doesn't need to include a bunch of shit that you never use or is more expensive than something that you actually need. And that there is a way to share wealth throughout an entire community and that, that relationships are, are, obviously the key factor in all of this is, is re a relationship of a community to uplift you. I'm really interested in, in what you were explaining in the beginning about what you went through in Bolivia, because I don't, I, I know very little about it. I spent so much time researching the culture and, uh, 
and the the difficulties that the culture of of Mexican people face. Uh, I I don't know a lot about Bolivia, so can you give me a little bit of you know your what happened and what you went through and and sure. how that plays into who you are today? Yeah, I think <laughs> it's been a long time since I talk about this, but uh, so Bolivia and some other countries. Just, sorry again. Sorry, Bolivia <laughs> and other countries in in South America had suffered from uh, well, what is not what was known as op um, Operación Condor. Mm -hmm which was basically the USA giving funds to militaries to destroy the, govern the government uh, that were more socialist or uh, going to more, uh, what's the word? To more of, um, not socialist, but communist. Yeah. Um, so uh, before I was born, my parents, when they were students, uh, my dad was part of a big like youth movement against the militaries and all the abuses that were occurring in Bolivia. And he actually um, was detained one time and and was able to to be free, but some he lost some of his friends on on that. And then we were born in the midst of all these things happening, and there was a military government after military government. So there was a big, huge economic crisis. So what I can remember when I was little, it was we will have to make long lines to get a coupon for, you know, some pounds of flour, some eggs, some grains. And that was how food was distributed uh, because there was no money. We had a huge, after the, all the, the military coups, uh, we had a very big economic crisis with inflation and money was changing so fast. And so one day you had a big amount of money that next day it was, you know, didn't value anything, was zero value. So, uh, you know, my parents, my dad was very uh, funny and he will raise a saying, okay, when you hear this, this is what you do, you know, and when you hear that, this is what you do. Kind of like preparing us if there was like some kind of another coup or another civil war or something like that. When I was around probably nine or 10, one of the first governments that came up into power was very aligned with the indigenous movement. And that was amazing to see. We were part of seeing a whole march of many, many miles of indigenous coming with the indigenous flag through the streets and through the mountains. They will come down and we'll go and take the power. And I remember that was the first time my dad showed me about like, raise your fist, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like we are part of this community. Finally, something is happening. And, and it was a big like hope that was the eighties. Uh, but of course, corruption, <laughs> there was a lot of corruption and actually indigenous were used as tokens and that government was really bad. And so, you know, Growing up all the time, finally, uh, we saw some hope in some other leaders and government and um, representatives, but nothing was real until, I don't know if you heard about the, the water war that happened in Bolivia. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, I was old enough to, to live through that and, and also the gas war. So we had two kind of civil wars that I will say, I will say more than words were like massacres to people. Uh, so people were fighting 
to access to water. And the government was selling everything. They were, um, everything that was national companies that the government was, was, you know, maintaining was being sold to companies outside of the country. And that meant that the costs were going to be higher, that people that had their own wells, th those were going to be privatized. So they were privatizing everything. And, and people couldn't stand that. So everybody raced on the streets. It was very powerful to just go to the streets and fight for it. And then you, you know, I saw people dying in front of me, like militaries against the police force. Like everything went crazy. Like everybody has a cause to fight. And the ones that had um, arms or guns will bring them. And we are not like a, a warrior uh, country. We like, we don't have a big army or that kind of things. We're not kind of violent. It's kind of weird. Yeah. So it was a big shock seeing like people being shot in the streets and um, that president had to escape. It actually lives here in Washington, D.C., I think now, um, because he had a lot of support from the USA to, to capitalize everything, to privatize everything. And, and that, was, that, was, that was really bad. But then the indigenous movement came stronger and we had the first indigenous president. And that was a lot of hope. And that was seeing, like, recognizing our identities, that, you know, we have indigenous blood and we have been hiding that for so long. And so many people have so many trauma with that just by accepting or still denying that. And people like my family, like, we are all colors. My siblings and I, were all colors. I think I'm delighted of, of my <laughs> siblings. And it was funny to see, like, also that, you know, division in my family. Like my mom is blonde with green eyes and, and she will defend like, no, we're not indigenous. And my dad was like, come on, what are you talking about? Like, look at my mom. And I had like a black grandmother and things like that. And we were all, all like bringing back our identity. Yeah. And it was amazing because there was this president that was a face for a lot of people that were hidden and being quiet for years like being forced to be silent uh so that was amazing that was really great and corruption hit again and uh i came to this country like i said as an adventure uh because we had an opportunity for study something i didn't it was my partner at the time that he had an opportunity to come and study something we said okay let, let, let's go let's go at the moment I, we had two kids and it's like let, let's try it it was a terrible experience for the first five years. Um, but we had a good group of other immigrants that were great. Uh, but, you know, we could see, still see what was going on in Bolivia and the indigenous movement getting stronger and still a lot of massacres happening in, in small towns uh, for the fight of resources, especially water, you know, access to some lakes or rivers. Um, yeah, inland. We lost some family members on that. It was just seeing in the news, you know, familiar names and just calling back to Bolivia and saying like, did you know this? And maybe we were the first ones knowing the news before then. Um, so yeah, that was kind of like what happened in Bolivia during my life, yeah. It's kind of, <clears throat> it's kind of crazy that um, I, I wish more people would research and really understand going back specifically to like our borders being closed to specific human beings 
to understand the role that our freedom, what we call freedom here, uh, the role that that played in the destruction of all of the other countries that are very close to us and, and how much of a role um, our ability to live the way that we do was dependent on these, these resources being taken, essentially. Do you know much about Mexico's indigenous movement, movement in Chiapas, the Zapatistas? Yeah, I know. Yeah. It sounds to me like what happened in Bolivia was like you got like there achieved something that never really the Zapatista movement was pushing for, but never really achieved. And, and the Zapatista movement was just another iteration of what what the the Mexican Revolution was fought for. Essentially, rights to things, land, or not. I don't want to use the word things, but like like things that should not be considered property. rights or yeah. property. They're just for everyone to have. Um, and, and also that the people who led that movement in the beginning were not specifically indigenous people, but they fought for the rights of indigenous people. Um, and the same thing happened in 1994, you know, the, the, the party leaders who were trying to make the, a movement in the right direction. And I think it continuously happens in Mexico. The people who try to fight to, to make things happen the right way are, either uh, assassinated probably by their own party because they're not speaking in a way that's going to benefit them and, and, or, or they're oppressed and not allowed to speak. Um, I think, you know, this, this monetization of, of necessities of life is something that even happens here in the United States and citizens don't understand you know, land. The thing is that there's the thing is that there's so much land here, and it's always been the craziest thing to me, even as a kid, to try to wrap my head around the purchase of land. When we look throughout history, I I, I just um, I, I I read a, a lot of the a lot of the reading that I do is actually about like how like the real story of of how this land that we call America, North and South America, which is a European name, yeah. was before. And um, through food, one of the things I discovered being in Oaxaca is, is was really beautiful because they held on to a lot of indigenous culture. I think the Spanish weren't really like super interested in those regions of Mexico because they were interested in the gold that the Aztecs had. So there was some vestiges of colonialism there, but there's still... You know, I spent 2015 traveling around the Valley of Oaxaca and going to places where people didn't even speak Spanish. Mm. And um, one of the interesting things to me is that, you know, there's something called the three sisters here, which is like corn, beans, and squash. In in Mexico, it's called milpa, mm -hmm. the milpa system. And people here understand Native Americans as different human beings, as Mesoamericans, when in reality, all of that culture came through the river valleys up to these regions because we were nomadic, like in not me specifically, I'm yeah. European blood for sure. <laughs> but like those peoples were nomadic and moved freely. And um, I think there was a lot of land and there was a lot less people here. And so it's harder for people to wrap their head around the fact that the the view of of 
of most Americans is that when the Europeans landed here, what was existing was just wild, animalistic human beings. But the cultures that existed specifically in Mesoamerica were larger than any on the planet and more civilized. They just didn't have steel and, and, and guns, you know, that's the, that's what they didn't have. And they lived a really beautiful life. They lived a life like we're talking about where things were not important. Um, and so it's interesting. I thought that I thought that during um, during the the pandemic, when we were having these supply chain issues and things weren't available, people would start to realize, like, shit, we just take things from other places. We don't build them here. It's possible for us to build them here. It's possible for us to have them here. It's possible for us to be a sovereign food society. There was some flashes of light that came and people started to realize it. But then like a light switch when it was over and those supply chains were reopened, we just forgot that any of that existed. And I think personally that we're one step away or one flip of a switch or one battle or war away from being a country that could be very similar to those that are being oppressed in in Central and South America. How do you see that as someone who's lived through it and now you're here? Like, do you see that we're kind of, that Americans are kind of living behind a thin veil of, of, of imagination or, or fantasy? Well, I think so. I think that, that that's why, you know, when I came to this country and having the data that I have, he was like, why are you going there? You know, like, traitor. You're going <laughs> to the empire. And I'm like, well, I'm going to be a Jedi. No. <laughs> I was like, no, really, I, I, I talked to him about the people that I met. And the people, not the people in power up there, you know, and, and the system, it's it's working very well for them. You know, it's not a bad system for for how it was created um and and meeting people um in the way i met people it was amazing to see you know that that understanding that hope it's just a matter of not how much food there is because there's ton of food how much land there is there's ton of land it's just the the redistribution of everything and for that you know having access to food and food sovereignty and, and land sovereignty and all that we need it's really a matter to bring in people to be feeling safe and that healing that we need as community. Because as I'm saying, you know, we talk about milk with dignity a lot and we said that we need all to join milk with dignity and that the model is what all the companies should go and follow that because that's really workers led. Uh, but it still is just the basic thing to start thinking about how to go back to living this life. Because if you think about rich people or the people that are oppressing others, what they're they are doing. They are living this kind of life because they don't have to worry about any resource, right? Yeah. They have all the resources. So in order to have that redistribution of resources for everybody, we need to feel safe. We need to feel uh, healthy. We need to feel whole again and not in surviving mode all the time, not having this emergency mood all the time trying to all the time looking back, you know, if I'm being followed, if I'm going to do something wrong, if, you know, like losing that fear and being in peace. And for that, it's like small steps that we need to take as communities and understand all all the similitudes that we have. You know, when we talk about how farmers support this, when farmers see that 
yeah, we have a lot of things in common. Yeah. Yeah, you're a farm owner, you have a lot of land, but also you're not getting what you should be getting and you're being forced to be in an industry that is polluting the whole thing when it could be simpler and you could have a simple life and everybody could be sharing this, you know? Yeah, I, I like that you use the, 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 the term everybody because I wonder how many people that lo look at the work that you guys are doing understand that that is that that move the movement that you're making at least i feel my view of what's going on is that you're not just fighting specifically for those um for those workers you're also fighting for human rights as a whole it's a it's a much bigger idealism and unfortunately i think that when people look at a a a face it, and still it's something that we face you were talking about the oppression that that black human beings in this or you know any skin color in this country fights for when we look at that color being the lead the leader of a movement it seems that citizens of this country who do not have that same color palette in their skin can't understand that we are all one human being and that we are all trying to fight for the same things and that the people the the people who are coming from other places are not fighting specifically just for themselves. They're not. That's a bigger analysis. You know, it's a bigger analysis that what we're bringing, what we wanted to do is not, yeah, that understand these commonalities, understand these intersectionalities, understand that, you know, the white people also have been oppressed in a way that they have been made believe that they have to own this and be successful. And for that, they have to feel superior than the others. That's also a lie that has been sold to yeah. the, you know, to the white. And, and, and that's why we need to bring them back to like, Hey, you don't need to do this. You know, you remember like, this is going to be good for all of us, you know, and understanding privileges. That's huge. You know, understanding privileges, even in our own communities, it's huge to understand, okay, if I can, if I treat, if I am three steps ahead, okay, I'll wait for the other person to be here and I'll lend my hand or I bring a stick or something. So then we can, we can be in the same level and keep walking together because we all keep walking. So in order to move forward, we have to understand that there are people ahead of us that, okay, okay, wait for us or send, you know, send the rope. Like, yeah. that's what, and, and that's really important. And, when I talk about Mel with Dignity, when we bring education to the farms, the benefit is for farm owners, managers, and any employee, you know, you say citizens, immigrants, undocumented or documented, whoever is a qualifying worker and the farm owner are going to receive the benefits of the program. Uh, that basically is economic redistribution, a kind of an economic justice in the supply chain. Yeah. On that, you know, bringing better quality of life for the workers so then your business is going to go better. And then hopefully farmers are going to join the fight in a way that they are going to, because they know what they are receiving is not enough. They know, they, they tell that. They, they, they have been movements of farmers trying to get better uh, resources and payment for their produce and being recognized. There's a big rate of suicide in farmers. So it's just like they are struggling, but then let's fight together. It's going to benefit us all, you know? Yeah, it's such a, it's such a difficult it's such a difficult war to wage when you're trying to bring light to the fact that 
essentially we've all been sold as quote unquote citizens of this specific land because we were born on this soil that we will all be taken care of and that we will all be okay. And as long as someone doesn't come and take it from us, like that's the biggest, that's the biggest fear I think in any, you know, red blooded American or whatever you want to call it is that something's going to be taken from them. And I think that that's a lot of what, what your community faces is getting past the idealism that they're trying to take something that's yeah, not the, the fear of the theirs. unknown, right? The fear exactly. of the unknown. And because the, you know, societies has been sold this idea of the individualism. You know, you on your own, you're successful. You on your own can do this. You're strong enough. You can do it. Yes. And it's not true. We yeah. are human beings that need communities. One of the things that, one of the things that really made me realize that was like, the, I, I kind of, I felt it. And that was one of the draws for me to actually go and like dig in to the culture of, of Mexico and Latin America as a whole is, is in seeing it in, in my workplace, but then really going in 2015, when I went and took a sabbatical and like lived in Oaxaca, I remember I was staying right by the Zocalo in Oaxaca and Centro. And I remember waking up early in the morning, like six in the morning and going walking and getting coffee and just walking around and looking at what was happening because that's really what I was there for. Um, and seeing all around the Zocalo, the stands of, you know, people selling t-shirts and food and whatever they were selling, the entire family was there. And the, the, all of the stands and all of the people knew each other. They were there. They were all laughing. They were all happy because they were together as a community doing this thing. And I would come back, you know, I'd be walking around at night, maybe leaving the bar from having some mezcal or something like that. And I'd see them breaking down. And they were all together and they were all laughing and they were all eating and they were all sharing space. They knew that they were on a specific level, but the fact that they didn't have what everybody else around them had was inconsequential because together collectively they were more powerful and they understood that happiness and collectiveness is what's important. And I don't think that they were ever in fear of somebody stealing their neighbor, stealing something from them or having more than them. I've had this conversation with a lot of people. Do I think that they want more for their lives? Absolutely. I think everybody everybody wants to have a nice a nice life or a nicer life or at least like a homeostatic form of living that's on equal with everybody else. But I don't think that what they're fighting for is like the nice car or the watch. I think they're just fighting for equality. They're just fighting to to not like you said, maybe be able to get sick and not go into work one day or not have to wake up and go every day from six in the morning until 11 at night with their stand and then pack their shit up and drive an hour into the Valle and then come back and set up again. And I think that I'm, I'm, I'm not like a nihilist. I don't, I'm not, I just don't really believe that this society and I'll like, this is going to be a pretty extreme statement, but it's just really what I believe. It's the way that I think. I don't really think without some sort of, for lack of a better term, civil war or, 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 or large battle for power. I don't think that we're going to see a place where human beings 
in the middle class maybe will even understand that. Will even understand that they're they are being oppressed even though they're made to feel comfortable. Like because they have benefits, because they have insurance, because they have food stamps, because they have a place to live for cheap in Section 8 housing, they think that they're taken care of. When in reality, they're just being put inside the same box that the rest of, you know, your community, for example, is being put inside. Um, how do you, how do you guys bridge that gap? Do you guys, do you guys as a community have a program of outreach or a system of outreach where you approach, you know, similarly oppressed human beings in the community here to educate them on what's happening and what may be happening inside their community? Is that something that you guys think about or? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think we, we're real on not romanticizing also the life in our countries and our families. There are a lot of machism in our culture. There are a lot of also things that are, I don't know, very toxic in families in, because of that, like we have to be a family and families first and we have to be united and sometimes things unacceptable are acceptable inside of families. And, and we also are sold this idea of, of success having, yes, the bigger car and a lot of money. And and that's what you see, like violence also raised in, in our countries because people want to have all these amazing things faster and, and you know, violence raised. Um, so when people migrate here, we have so many different stories and we talk about that and there's a lot of education that we do like political education um community education so people really start understanding okay i'm not here only to make money and and then yeah buy the big car or or more plastic like i was yeah. saying before you know or or, or the huge quinceanera party or <laughs> huge wedding it shouldn't be like that and, and people are understanding that you know the ones that want to be involved we don't force anybody like we we bring what we have and people who want to listen also listen um we do a lot of uh outreach in our community about for example domestic violence uh sexual violence harassment and all those things because we know it's embedded in our culture it's just normalized and, and we have to talk about these things now answering your question about other communities here facing similar things i mean we don't do a specific outreach to those communities because we are educating our own community right now and all those things. Uh, but we encounter people that come to us and probably ask the things. And especially it's good when teachers approach and we can go to a class. We have developed a curriculum for K to 12 for schools, um, public schools, probably, you know, most yeah. are the, the ones that mostly reach out to us. And, and there is a lot of things there that we, we bring up to the classroom and, and talk to kids and talk to people um, same with, you know, students that come or uh, college students that come and wanted to volunteer or be interns and things like that. Uh, we always try to bring this education back. You know, this is no charity, solidarity. What does that mean? And, and realizing that, okay, you're not doing this for them. Like we are all in this. How, you know, how are you part of this now? Uh, why are you part of this? It's not only improving your Spanish or, um, you know, being being helpful to somebody that's less than you. Actually, tell us your story and opening those spaces for people to share their stories is when we see this 
you know, we encounter each other, yeah, let's yeah. say, in that that moment that people are telling their stories. Um, and we had some amazing connections and good success with people. Um, others that, no, they don't see it, and then they off, off they go. Yeah. Um, Speaking of school specifically, how do you see the younger generation of, because you've been doing this for a while now, so I'm sure that you've seen kids become adults who have been part of the the movement or maybe their parents were part of the movement. When I was on the, when I first at 18, that was in 2003, I moved to the West Coast. I, I had um, friends who were second or third generation um, Latin Americans who were, I guess, maybe not ashamed of their culture, but they were taught to maybe oppress their feelings or show not more, express. Show more whiteness, right? Show yeah, more yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and a lot of them didn't speak Spanish. Yeah. Like in their, their, their mother and father spoke Spanish in the house and they would refuse to speak Spanish for that reason. How do you see this next generation coming in, evolving? And do you see a similar pattern happening? Well, it depends. You know, one thing that surprised me when I just started uh, meeting more women here in the in the migrant community in the farms was that a lot of them uh, had received a very direct uh, education about birth control. And it was birth control and all had to have birth control and you cannot have more kids or don't have kids yet. And that was the thing that the first thing that they received from someone here was that education. And I was like, shit, they are controlling yeah. how many people are going to be born here. It's, it's a way of control. Absolutely. Just saying that because, but they're putting it in the, in, the, in the face of, it's your freedom. It's, you're free because you are free not to have kids. But real, in reality, they were saying, don't have kids. You know, and, and if they were kids, speak to them in English because they're going to have trouble. Like they're not going to understand. They need to speak English. And, and, and it was very like, what, what's going on? You know, yeah. I, I, I came with two small kids and then I had one kid here and I saw also the same process, you know, and, and we raise our kids in a way with conscious, like understand who you are, where you come in and also the differences and, you know, same lessons that my dad gave me and everything. Um, so I think things are changing now and there is more hope. Like I was saying before, I saw the repetition of the history. You know, kids will come here, seeing their parents maybe being part of the movement and not wanting to have anything to do about it and actually re rejecting that and wanting to make more money and, and repeating the history of not finishing school but coming to make money for having things. Yeah. You know? Uh, but now I, th I see families changing and I, like I said also uh, there are more families here in Vermont more women more kids uh, I think something has shift in, in in that like first encounter and shock I had when I came uh, because we we are more together talking about these things you know and, and bringing all this education towards us um, I can say for my own kids sometimes they didn't have an option to don't come to the assembly or don't come to the to the march. I mean, they were with me. I had to go. They will come. Yeah. So they will leave that. And for a time, they were like, I don't want to go there. No. And and then 
now they are kind of young adults and they surprise me with what they do on their own and also recognizing their own identities. We were very strong about like, at home we speak Spanish. At home we will speak Spanish because you have all the English outside. You know, their dad speaks English very well. I learned here. I still make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> um, and, and it wasn't a matter of like, I cannot speak to you in English, but I want you to not lose your Spanish. You really have to speak Spanish at home. And sometimes, you know, some words will go in English or between them they will be speaking in English. And it was like coming back to, no, 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 let's speak in Spanish. And even now it's like learning, learning, learning. And I say like, okay, you teach me English. Help me with these words, but you have to talk to me in Spanish and let me teach you the new words that you're learning in English that never heard in Spanish. Let me teach you in, in, in Spanish. So I think now that more kids are coming for the migrant community in the farms and in our community at Migrant Justice, I see young people coming and really understanding what their parents are doing, what they are fighting, uh, understanding the inequality, not, you know, like not wanting to reject that anymore. Um, some kids might do, and probably it's going to be a phase. <laughs> yeah. Probably not. Uh, but I see more acceptance from, from these new generations. And that way, you know, I'm thinking like last year, there were a lot of kids that were born. This year, it's going to be a ton of kids that are going to be born. I would start thinking about really this. These are the new generations that are going to be here and hopefully not fighting for the same things we're fighting. Hopefully having a better life and being able to do the next steps for bigger changes, you know? Yeah, I mean those are those are the those are the people who will carry the movement on to its next phase because of course this is not something that can happen overnight. Um it's funny speaking about languages you know I remember being a kid here in school we had a certain amount of uh uh second language that was required. I think I had to take two years of a language and nothing else and even in those language courses I was told that it was it was looked at as an R or like uh, I'm 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 just trying to figure out how to put this properly, but essentially what I was told was it doesn't really matter because everywhere else in the world is going to speak somebody's going to speak English no matter where you go. That was the ideal that was in my head. It was like, well, it's not really that important to understand it. Maybe I'll learn a few words, but English English is the pr predominant language in. In, in business for sure. And it is kind of classist to some extent, right? Even in Mexico, the people who don't speak English don't make it as far as the people who do speak English. And I think there's some real value in, in, in understanding that um, all of us came from somewhere else and we should all be proud of all of the things that, that, that make us who we are. And I do think that as human beings, we should see the value in just even understanding another language, being able to communicate another language and what that does for the way we look at the world and the way we learn things and how inherent it is in human beings. Like one of my favorite authors and just he's a, a dissident as well as Noam Chomsky and he's a, a, a linguistics God. He's essentially disseminated linguistics in a way that's changed the way we look at it. Um, and one of the interesting things that he talks about is like all language being um, 
it's made up. It's, we just make up ways to communicate. Right. And he explains that, you know, maybe a thousand years ago inside a space like Vermont, there would have been a thousand different languages from town to town when you go. So they're all just noises that we make to, to, to communicate, to, to communicate mm-hmm. and define things. And I think that we can really be so much more intelligent and evolved as human beings if we learn how to communicate with a vast majority of human beings. But what I see happening is that was one of the things that that was really cool about moving. And, and one of the reasons why I moved to Puerto Escondido, when I moved there, it was very small. There was four flights a day going in. There was definitely tourism. There was definitely expats. But I made a conscious effort to only hire local people. Um, we only spoke Spanish at the restaurant. I spoke horrible Spanish and none at all. And I had a, this girl who cooked for me was a local girl. She was 17 years old. She had no cooking experience. She spoke zero English. And the beginning of our relationship was me trying to piece words together and then using my hands or demonstration to get through. But I put myself through that process because uh, I got to learn a lot about their view of the world. And, And the interesting thing to draw back to these like little pockets of of how communication used to happen is is kind of how I look at the world and how I always have is that you know when we talk about community uh and I'm interested in your perspective because I had asked you if you look at other communities to like reach out to them for me I think our solution to becoming a better world is instead of using this idealism of like think locally act globally or whatever that statement is that people make. I believe that if we all just focused on our, on our local community, on, on ways to build what our bubble is, my bubble for me is whatever's within arm's reach at the moment. Right. Um, and, and I think that when we go to places, we look through, uh, uh, we look at them like a snow globe. Like we're just passing through instead of realizing that we can become part of a community in that moment and that that can be our life and we don't need to be worried about things outside um is the way that you guys function it, does the way that you function here feel like the way that you funcu- functioned in your family dynamic in Bolivia or like I know Mexican families exist and focus on what's happening today, what's happening inside our community. And then we build an example of what can happen on the outside. Do you find that that's how you guys function now inside your community? It's possible. Yeah, I think so. Now that you bring it like that. Yeah, I I believe so. I believe I, like I said, I, I, I was fortunate enough to have the parents I have in have that education of understanding and consciousness about the, the reality of inequity and racism and all these things uh, and privileges and all that and and coming to this country and learning that I can bring that to and pass that to my family. It's amazing. And as you said, you know, there are no Bolivians in Vermont that I know. I met a few, but then they left. Um, So this community has become my community, my family. And it's, it's really great how do we, yeah, bring all these things together the same as you're saying. And it's important to, to realize that we act like that because when you were talking about languages, um, you just put kids together that speak different languages and they are going to manage to play together no matter what. 
Yeah. You know, and it's it's amazing to see that, you know, like I was saying, all my kids uh, spoke Spanish at home. So when they started school, they didn't speak any English. And I remember my daughter made friends with a kid that had some hearing problem. So she couldn't understand a word that everybody was saying. And the kid couldn't understand a word that everybody was saying because he couldn't hear very well. But they became very good friends because they could play hide and seek by blowing or making signs. And it was amazing. They became really good friends, um, like best friends for years. And it's amazing to to see those dynamics, that how we can connect with people that we don't speak the same language or we don't understand, but we make a way to to reach out to each other because we are, again, human beings that need to be in community. So I think that's part of migrant justice. You know, we as we build and the organization grow to be a nonprofit, grassroots. You know, we had to become a nonprofit for the legal, whatever things, but we're more as a collective, as you said. And I think we always try to be conscious about um, those kind of dynamics that that we have on our staff and who comes and who makes the decisions is always bringing everybody together and having the farm worker leaders to tell us to the staff what to do and what not. And we had good examples that we have in the staff, like three organizers that were farm workers and they were leaders and they like went, you know, developing their leadership until they are now organizing. Um, and we see more and more and more of that. Yeah, I think it's important. <clears throat> I think it's important. Like you said, there's there's no Bolivians here, but I imagine that you don't, and I don't like, I don't look at you and see a Bolivian. I look at you and see a Vermonter, <laughs> you know, and I look at all of those people that, you know, I, we went to the, the Christmas party and I, everyone at that party, I looked at as a Vermonter. I didn't look at that's a Mexican in Vermont. Um, I, through the lens of food, I have an interesting way of how I kind of came to this realization in 2015, I met a guy, a, a, a great chef when I was there. His name is uh, Rodolfo Castellanos and he has a restaurant called Origen. At the time he was, had just won like top chef Mexico and he was a really beautiful restaurant, really incredible food that he was making. And he was doing kind of his modern version of, of Oaxacan food. Um, and I had been really perplexed at what was happening and still continues to happen where people go to, you know, sh American chefs go to Mexico or to another country and they come back and they've gone on vacation there for two weeks and they come back and they say, I'm making Mexican food at my restaurant. I'm making Oaxacan food at my restaurant. So I was sitting at the table at the end of this dining experience and I asked him, aren't you, aren't you angry or aren't you upset that these people are coming and going back home and making Oaxacan food when it's absolutely nothing like what you have here. And he told me very plainly, he said, no, I don't care. He said, we're here making Oaxacan food and they're there making American food. <laughs> and it was like a light switch clicked on for me. It's like, we can choose to be upset about those things or we can yeah. choose to look at them in their reality the same way we can choose to look at human beings. Like this isn't a Mexican person. This is a human being who is here now. This is my community. My bubble is this space. So this person is my neighbor. This person yeah. is a Vermonter because they, their feet are on Vermont soil in the moment. We, we have this tie to, 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 as you said a, a bit ago, like this individualism where we need to put our foot in the soil and say, this is my land. Yeah. 
none of this is any of our land. Exactly. <laughs> and exactly. Es and especially now, like you said, your family and seeing in Mexico, like I know, you know, the girl that worked for me, her family is, I don't know if they could even trace back how many generations they've been in exactly the same place on the coast of Oaxaca. Yes, there's some of those families that exist, but the majority of the families even inside Mexico are varying shades of color because they've intermingled with other human beings. So I think we all have to look, you know, if you look, I'm sure if I did a DNA test, which mm -hmm. I would love to someday, but I just haven't got around to it yet. I am from many different places around this world. No one is, is, is uniquely tied to any one specific place. Um, yeah, definitely. Well, but when I say there are no Bolivians, it's because one thing that you miss is your words or, you know, like your yeah, food yeah. and things like that. And, and, and there's like, yeah, I, I, for a, for a little bit, we had, uh, uh, a leader and co-workers from Peru and, and she will say some things in Quechua that I will understand and we will have this like understanding of like we grew up with the same kind of like food and words and we're like you know I I have made my Spanish so much into the community from actually South Mexico that I work with <laughs> and uh, my community that I have forgot about that word and now I can, yeah, I can relate to that. So that's something that even now, you know, wherever I go, I, I hear some Spanish like, hey, where are you from? Like, let's talk. And, you know, because it, it's something that I miss. And we miss a lot. Um, you know, it's, yeah, I think you're right. We, are, we can say we're all Vermonters and I'm part of a project that's called I'm Vermont 2. I don't know if you know about the project. <laughs> no, I didn't. That's yeah, awesome. It's amazing. It's I am Vermont 2 and you take a picture and say, Put something that you people told you about not being a Vermonter, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or some comment that somebody did. It's an amazing project. Um, but I hope, you know, a lot of people, more people will see that as you just described because it's not. It's, it's impressive. Like, and I do understand the importance of celebrating your specific place. Like I, it took me a while to become fluent in Spanish, I, I was using, I took some class, like I, I knew kitchen Spanish when I, when I, when I moved to Mex when I moved to, to Oaxaca, to Mexico. And I was like, I was using Duolingo and I was like trying to teach myself. And then I said, fuck it. Like, that's not how I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to the Mercado every single day. I'm only going to speak with local people. So now when I speak, like my, my wife, for example, does not like the way I speak Spanish, not that she, I, I think she doesn't not like it. She just comes, she's from Veracruz and her family is not, I guess, upper middle class, if you want to call it that, but not the type of Spanish I speak is like, you know, oh, I say, yeah, yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. She's, I sound yeah. like, she says, I, yeah. I, I sound like I'm from the Mercado, but then I go other places and I speak with other people in, in Spanish in Mexico and then when I'm with my friends that I've made in Oaxaca and we're drinking and we're saying like, wait, no mind, like all the things that you say when you're not around other people, or I shouldn't say when I'm around other people, there is an element of home in that. No, there's an element of home. Like when I come back here, I have kind of a different accent, I think, than when I speak English in other places. So I I, I don't, like, I, I I don't mean to say that we shouldn't be unique and we shouldn't 
gather those things, but I think it's, I think it's cool that you guys kind of can't have that lens almost, right? Like you're kind of forced to look at it through a different lens and that's unique. You, you guys are building a community that's very diverse. You were saying that, so the majority of the people who, who you guys are working with are Mexican or yeah, so most of the community in the dairy farms are from South Mexico, so either Chiapas or Tabasco. Yep. Yeah, uh, there are a bunch of people from Tabasco. Yeah, there are some people from Veracruz, actually. Um, we did. My my wife met a woman from Veracruz. There you go. And and some of the workers are from Guatemala. Yep. So that's the majority of workers in the dairy farms. There are more Latin American community in Vermont. For sure, from Ecuador, there are a bunch of Ecuadorians, Argentinians, Peruvians, Colombians. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in the farms, it's, it's mostly South Mexico and in Guatemala. So I had to learn, actually, to to say some words that they could understand. Because if I was presenting something, and I'm like, ah, what do you mean by that? Or, or I would say something like, why did you say that? It's like, it means this. It's like... No, you said that for for other thing. It's not for that. You say this word, and like okay, or I would say something like that's a bad word. Like what? It's not for me. And they will say something like, but that's a bad word for me. And like no, it's not. It means this. So it's it's nice to have that. Like by the way, it sounds like somebody's roller skating upstairs. Um, yeah, it's it, it it's interesting that so many people are coming from. Chiapas and Oaxaca. It was the same in it was the same on the West Coast. Um and I'm I'm interested now I mean I think a lot of people probably know that there's been some major issues in Guatemala and there's been some major migration issues between Guatemala and Mexico specifically. I don't know how many people understand that you know Chiapas and Oaxaca are like the entrance from Guatemala, Guatemala and that people have been Tabasco too. Yeah. yeah and Tab- I ne- Tabasco is like the only, one of the only places I've never been in Mexico. Um, it's in a weird little yeah. pocket, but um, are you guys seeing more Guatemalans come now than historically in the past? And just a caveat for people that don't understand. I think a lot of what was happening at the border when everybody's favorite president was in office was actually had a lot to do with the movement coming from Guatemala. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't see more people from Guatemala now coming. I think it's the same. Uh, but more people from Mexico, definitely. Like I say, families and more women. Yeah, I was I was very surprised when we went to the to that party to see just how many there are in this community. And I would love like uh, so. I met it. There's a I don't know if you know this, but there's a a pizza place here called. Um, paisanos. paisanos that are Oaxacans and we met them at like a co- we were at the coffee shop and we saw these guys and um I've noticed this a couple of times because I've even seen some um some Hispanic people in the YMCA for example I've seen this in a lot of places where Hispanics maybe don't speak English or not comfortable speaking English that they kind of walk around with their head down I would love to see a time where all of the people, for example, that I saw at that dinner are able to walk around the street in the same way that we are and that it would be accepted. And I wonder at what point as we grow here, the necessity would be for a a, a Latin American cultural center. Does something like that exist here now? 
No, like I was saying, Vermont doesn't have a town or a store. Yeah. Where, you know, we got it together. It's incredible. Um, and and again, you know, like not all people from Mexico to Patagonia were the same. There's so many, you know, different social classes and different colors. And we also have racism and oppression in, in our countries. Um, so you encounter these things here, you know, all of a sudden somebody that might be middle upper class in Latin America comes here and, and it's a Latina. Yeah. And, and, and it's like, what? And they are putting the same level that maybe a farm worker that always grew up in the rural environment, low class, and they don't like that. So there is this kind of like encounter. Uh, but it's, it's like, okay, we're all called Latinos or Hispanics. Uh, so my while, you know, let's party together. That's what we have you know? But the, you, you see those encounters, it's kind of sad to see that, but it happens too. So mm, I don't know. I, I have to say that one of my first experiences in Vermont, I used to work for a for an art uh, gallery, and part of my job was bringing all the the publicity for the shows that we were gonna have all over kind of Vermont, the Norris Kingdom, and um, Central Vermont. Every town I went, I found someone that spoke Spanish uh, or were from you know Central or South America, and I'm like you're in the middle of the mountain what are you doing here and uh, i they either came for a little bit and a stay or married a vermonter and they were there so for me it was like vermont has a lot of people that come from our countries but it's really isolated it's really we don't have like a town that's why like i got so um attached to my justice because then we have these opportunities with the assemblies with the events that we can all come together and feel that way like feel free to you know, have your head up and, and sing and talk and share. That's amazing. Yeah. I haven't seen in other places even. I mean, I guess in Vermont in general, like the biggest city is Burlington. The barrier of entrance in Burlington is 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 really difficult even for rural Vermonters to ever imagine coming here. I mean, the the cost of living here is comparable to what I was what I was affording in Los Angeles. And and I think that that's probably part of the reason and i don't think it's like very specific to 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 the latin american community but of course more so when yeah, but when, you know there is a large latin community living in, Bur in burlington also not in not working in dairy farms but working in other industries and and they are still hidden you know yeah yeah because that's, th there is that there is that fear of Maybe you're undocumented, maybe you're not, but that fear of being judged because you don't speak the language and you're a different color and people are always going to make assumptions about who you are or what you bring. And yes, you're unknown and people are afraid of that and going to be violent towards you. So it's it's interesting to see that. That's why we try to to have those spaces, you know, where the community can come together and feel, feel home and feel like free to, yeah, to be them. <laughs> Yeah, and I think a lot of that a lot of that change can only come with education. And the hard part is that the onus is not on uh, any other culture than our own and what we've built here. You know, I I I firmly believe that we, you know, I'm 37 years old. I think that my generation needs to take a big role in in speaking out. I think a lot of people have a problem speaking out especially in a place like Vermont that's a small community like you said the farmers being afraid of what their neighbors are going to think i think we're we're past that and i hope 
to see some change, but there still is indoctrination. Like there's still indoctrination to this old way of thinking, specifically in 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 trade driven communities like farming, like construction. Um, and in I see now that there's people from the outside moving. There's a been a huge migration from cities, you know, like New York City here. And I hope that arts can be part of moving that culture forward at some point. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, we've been talking for an hour and 34 minutes, which is wonderful. And I feel like we could continue talking forever, but before we clip out, I, I do want to, um, I do want to have a, I do want to hear you personally, what you think we can all do and how we can move forward and what a future looks like for, for all of us, uh, with equality, you know, and what are the, what are the steps that we take? Huge question, <laughs> but you know, take as long as you need. <laughs> no, uh, uh, something I can share that has been wonderful for me in Vermont is, uh, there is another coalition that was formed just to pass a bill and ended up keeping as a coalition is the education justice coalition. And it's a bunch of people of color, uh, trying to bring changes into the schools. Um, you know, there is a report that says about how much racism happens in the schools. I have seen it with my kids. I have seen it with other kids. And um, we always find ourselves, you know, fighting alone or the kids just facing these things alone because there's no support. Uh, however, having this coalition of a bunch of people of color in Vermont has been amazing. Like every meeting I have with them, it's something that, elevates my soul. I have to say, you know, seeing all these colors in different accents and doesn't matter how good or bad you speak English or understand, you learn everything from the history in Palestine to whatever happens in Ghana or everywhere, you know, like even in Vermont. Uh, uh, and one thing that we have in common, and I think that's something that we also at Migrant Justice are trying to bring to our community that's learning about this is the collective liberation. Once we understand that we are in this together and we have to get together, like we said, dismantling the system, but we need to build something for, for ourselves and for the future generations. You know, you said you have a two-year-old. What's the future for that two-year-old? Um, I don't want the kids to to go back to the circle of like we only have to make money and become like labor force in order to survive or in order to have good things uh, or or a peace of mind. So that collective liberation has to come when things start happening from in our communities, like not only educating outside and reaching out other communities, but our own communities, our own healing, our own process of uh, accepting that we have all these divisions and differences, but also the same struggles in learning how to talk about that openly and learning how to heal together, not only staying in one place, but really moving like um, like we do with dancing, you know? <laughs> and, 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 and that is like that energy, we have to be contagious to other communities. So hopefully in the future, you know, not too far from now, seeing how you know the, we don't have winter right now and it's just crazy how 
how the climate is, the, how the Mother Earth is telling us, like, hey, you know, like, do something, things are going wrong. We have to start taking those big steps of coming together as a community for this, I said before, like, the just transition, but understanding really what does that mean? What does that mean that we are in harmony with our surroundings? Um, that we are not putting, you know, each other like against each other we're not fighting against each other because um it doesn't matter like you said i really beautifully you know when you see people they are vermonters okay then we're human beings we need to stick together and hopefully that's going to happen sooner than later and as i said you know these new generations and new babies that are coming are going to have a different fight it's not going to be hopefully not the same that we are doing not to be invisible or not to have our dignity back but for bigger things, like, okay, now how do we are in harmony with nature? Because now we feel safe where we are and now we can start building our things uh, or giving back to what the old or parents struggle and not repeat the history, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's beautiful. <laughs> we should all carry the same flag. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> I don't know. Well, no flags. <laughs> <laughs> no flags. Yeah. There you go. The black. Let's all live under the black flag. <laughs> Um, well, I really appreciate the, the, the time, uh, with you sitting down with me and, um, quickly, if, if people want to find out more or activate, how can they become active in, uh, migrant justice in, um, milk with dignity and the other project that you said is education justice collect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Coalition. Yeah. I say collective. So, uh, yeah, for migrant justice, you know, it's migrantjustice.net not org, not com, that net, migrantjustice.net. Uh, there is a link there to get involved and you can, um, you know, check any box that you feel you can join or bring your skills, ideas, uh, or just participate on it. Um, you can find us in social media. Um, we're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, our office is in Burlington, just nearby you know it's in Winooski Avenue um Winooski and King you can stop by at any moment come we have events there is a a tour coming in April so get involved um yeah find us in social media if you cannot find us on the on the website because we're going to be updating about the events that we're having and the best way to connect with our communities coming to this event. Uh, volunteering with transportation is a way to connect with our community. Uh, with the Education Justice uh, Coalition, same thing. It's a website. And also they are part of Act 1 in, in the legislation, um, trying to bring equity and justice in the schools. It's changing the standards for schools. Um, so yeah, I don't know, get involved. <laughs> Awesome. Well, we'll link, uh, I'll, I'll li link all those things in the show notes also. So, muchísimas gracias. And, gracias uh, a ti. Yeah. Viva la resistencia. Viva, viva la huelga. La <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Travis.